Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Good morning, Mosaic. Again, it's so good to worship with you today. I love that question, by the way, asking Michelle what got her here, what got her interested. I often ask some of you that, just kind of curious as what that is. Let me tell you what we're excited about her, not only what she's going to bring from a storytelling and communication standpoint, but she's got great skills. She worked with Focus on the Family, if some of you know, some magazine article, cover stories that she would do for them, just great skill. But what really excites us beyond that is her heart. I mean, she has a depth and a faith, and just a prayer walk that is just rich, and uh, it's been an encouragement already to, to me. I know it will be to you as well as you get to know her. Make sure you get out there and say hi to her. Uh, related to Michelle, I was just going to mention, uh, Taylor, our next-gen pastor, is on his way back right now, en route from Texas. Uh, he's been here for the last few weeks, as we introduced him a few weeks ago, but he had to go back down, pack up the house. Alexa has been down there finishing up the school year as a school teacher. They're en route now with their dog, Scout. They're up here, going to be here back up on uh, Monday, tomorrow, and Tuesday getting in. Super excited. Great things already happening with his leadership in our next-gen ministry, and real excited to get Alexa on the ground here as well. Good things happening. A lot of great things happening with our staff expanding and just great belief and unity, even as we head into the summer months. And by the way, uh, happy Memorial Day weekend, and it's just good to see you. I know there's a lot of travel, a lot going on. Summer's going to take us in a lot of different places. I'm glad you chose to worship with us today, and I hope you're encouraged by the community together. As we continue on in Luke, um, I do want to start off with like a, just a pop quiz, just a quick question for you. When was the last time you felt a temptation? When was the last time you faced something that you knew, this is something I shouldn't do, this is something I shouldn't say, this is a place I shouldn't go, this is something I shouldn't look at, some kind of a temptation? Some of you are sitting there thinking like seven seconds ago, and um, you're probably, if you're feeling that, are some of the most honest people in the room, right? We face this all the time, but kind of think, what was the thing that came to your mind the last time that you really faced a, you know, one of those real temptations? How did that go for you? Did you find yourself, was it a habitual thing that you were drawn to again, or was it something new that just completely caught you off guard, maybe reactionary to something? Was it something that you found yourself having victory in? Or or is it something that as you look back, you you feel like I failed in? Anybody want to share their story? I'm just kidding. No. No, that'd be horrible. We, We just, we walk through this thing called temptation all the time. And as we're continuing on in this letter, this book of, of Luke that captures so much of the life of Jesus, this interesting, intriguing little story of Jesus's temptation is captured in Luke chapter four. It's this incredible snapshot of the God of creation. We've talked about the fact that God can be trusted is what Luke is about. And the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is the story. Jesus is allowing the arch enemy, the fallen angel, Satan himself, to tempt him. What an incredible story. And this snapshot gives us an opportunity to see how Jesus identifies with our humanity, but also how we can escape when we do face those onslaughts of temptations that so often we have in our life. So to get us started real quick, I want to give you maybe a biblical working definition of temptation. When we're saying temptation, here's what we mean. We mean that it's an invitation to self-interest rather than God-interest. It's an invitation. It's this little carrot, this little new shiny thing that's in front of you. That's an invitation to, you got a, you got a fork in the road. Do I want to do this God's way 
or I'm being invited to try something different or, or walk a different path or trust my own knowledge or, or trust voices around me or whatever it is or experiment something new. Do I want to go my own way? It's an invitation to self-interest rather than God's interest, to my own desires rather than God's desires, to being a, a model of devotion and fidelity, if you would, to the way of Jesus and the way of God or to be a person of infidelity and, and going my own way instead. It's this invitation to that. And a couple statements that would be helpful that I want to encourage you, not just in the message today, but as you face temptation ahead, to have in your mind and on your radar. For the note takers, here it is. There is always more at stake than just the temptation. There's always more at stake. There's more happening behind the scene than just what you're being tempted with. We'll, we'll unpack that as we go. And the second thing, and this is crucial, Temptation, any type of temptation that you're facing is always an issue of your trust and your confidence in God. When you boil it down, you're, you're, wait, you're talking about pornography online or taking that drink again or, or whistling at that girl and kind of pursue a relationship even though I'm married or cheating on my taxes, whatever. You're trying to put this into this bucket? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's this invitation to say, do I trust and have confidence in God, in his way, or am I trusting and having confidence that this is worth it to go in my own interest a different way, and I choose that path instead? Temptation is always an issue of my trust and my confidence in God, whether I'm going to exercise that or chase something differently. So with that, let's start looking at the text together. Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It's right on the heels of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River, and this is what it says to us. Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And then the next phrase, which is maybe the greatest throwaway phrase in all of the scripture, so unnecessary, after eating nothing for 40 days, at the end of that, he was hungry. I don't think we needed you to tell us that, Luke. We could have figured that part on our own, right? But it is interesting to think that the God of the universe, his identity with humanity, just like us after going without meals for an extended period of time, we're going to be hungry. Jesus is feeling that. Jesus has got a little hangry in him. He's got a little bit of fatigue in, and his body is weak at this point. And at that moment, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. Now, there's a couple things I want to pull from these first two verses, and we're going to look at some of the temptations that will follow. But first of all is this, temptation is not a sin. It's important to identify that. Temptation is not a sin. I think the enemy wants to make you think that when you've been tempted, you've already fallen into the trap. I think it's one of the lies he hooks us with. And it's just like, so temptation is not the sin. It's what you do as you act on that sin. Jesus was tempted Jesus is without sin. He shows us that you can be tempted and not be in sin. And so that's an important thing that we recognize in here. I think there's comfort or identity that we can find that it's like we are all going to face different kinds of temptations. We're all going to face those opportunities to choose my own interest versus God's interest. But just that fork in the road and looking at that and, and holding on to that moment, that's not the sin. What I do with it, that's when it becomes a sin. And Jesus doesn't go there. And we have an opportunity to escape that as well. Second thing you uh, pull from those first couple verses is, notice this, when did this happen? When does this temptation take place? What was happening in chapter three beforehand? Last week, kind of took a peek at it with Chris and Tina Ferry. It was the baptism of Jesus, remember that? I mean, this is a big, like, spiritual kind of crescendo moment for some of us. So we just last week, we had people baptized. I was looking online and seeing pictures of my buddy Stefan and Jake and others who got baptized going public in the faith that they found in Jesus. This is a big, wow, exciting spiritual moment, right? 
the very next thing we see is an attack from the enemy. How often does that happen in our life? It's what happened to Jesus. In fact, it says in chapter three, when Jesus is being baptized by John the baptizer, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Here he comes and he's baptizing him. It says there was a voice from heaven, the voice of God, the Father himself, who says, this is my son, you are my son, and in you I am well pleased. I am pleased. Jesus goes from hearing the voice of heaven. What's the next voice we see in the scripture that he hears? A voice from hell. Satan himself attacking and trying to counterattack the truth that the Father God had just spoke about him, the truth that John the baptizer had just spoken about him. This is the son of God. If you are the son of God, he goes from the voice of heaven to the voice of hell. He goes from the voice of blessing. What a good, rich place we experience in our life. Goes from the voice of blessing to the voice of battle. Immediately runs into the spiritual battle that he'll face with the enemy. He goes from the confirmation of his identity and the security of who he is as the Messiah, the son of God, from that confirmation to a conflict. Happens to us all the time too, doesn't it? You think about when you're like, I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I'm giving my life to Jesus. It's New Year's. I'm going to start something and I'm going to start a new discipline in my life. I'm going to make a commitment this week that I'm going to reach out to two friends this week. Whatever it is, I'm going to pray every day this week. I'm going to carve out time to study the scriptures. You take a a spiritual move and so many times right after that, you go from the blessing and the joy and the commitment to the battle. You you go to the conflict. It happens all the time. And Jesus experienced the same thing. There's something else to notice in here too. There's a kind of a contrast in even the scenery. When you think of the baptism, it's in the Jordan River, which you can go to this day. Anybody been baptized in the Jordan River? A few of you? Yeah, a few, yeah. I've been in the Jordan River, not baptized. I I would not go underwater in that green, nasty, ooh. But I'm proud of you guys. Um, If we ever take a trip to Israel, I'll be privileged to baptize you. You will not baptize me. But um, uh, but no, it's, it's such an experience where Jesus is baptized. Water flowing, the green trees all around. There's life. When you look in the scripture, water always represents life. What's the contrast? Where has the spirit led him and where is the enemy tempting him? In the desert. Complete contrast. Anytime you see the desert, think of Old Testament wandering Israel, Moses in the desert. Anytime you see the desert in the scripture, it's desolation, it's desperation. From life to doing all I can to take life in this context of the desert. Just notice that. Sometimes some of the the great spiritual moments that you walk through, these mountaintops, these, wow, am I experiencing God? Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged and defeated if the very next thing you experience is a battle, is a conflict with the enemy, is the doubts that he wants to spring on you. Um, In verse three, in fact, he springs this doubt. He says, if you are the son of God. Again, he's just heard, this is the son, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. If you are the son of God, this is how Satan likes to work. Satan likes to take the question, put question marks in our life where God has already put periods. He's already made the statement. He's made the declaration. And Satan loves to put question marks to that. Go back to Genesis chapter uh, two. Did God really say, he says to Eve, that you can't eat this and you can't? He's trying to put doubts all the time. It's, It's his master plan. It's the ploy that he does. He wants to create doubts and shatter our certainty. It's a temptation he tries to do repeatedly, as we'll see with Jesus. And he does it with us all the time. Satan loves to put question marks where God has already made a declaration. No, there's a period on the end of this sentence. It's true, I can be trusted. 
In the next verses that follow here in chapter four, there's going to follow three temptations, three different specific temptations that we're going to look at. But to get there, let me just, something I wanted to mention as a metaphor that would be helpful. Last weekend, I was um, fishing. I was up in Montana. I was part of a uh, leadership retreat with some pastors and some of the senior leaders from Converge. Such a gift, so enriching and just, man, I encourage. It's why community is so important in the family of God and connecting with other pastors and leaders who carry some of the same roles uh, that I do and uh, prayer and sharing life and teaching. And we, we carved some time out to go out on the little Bighorn River and do some fishing, do some fly fishing out there. And, and I love it. It's so refreshing. I love, I mentioned before, being outdoors, creation. I love it. Just drifting for miles on this boat. It's kind of ruined me. I know we got some fly fishermen in, in the church here. My problem is, if you want to go fly fishing with me, I'm going to be like, here, can you get the tangle out of my hook for me? Here, can you put the new bait on for me? Hey, where's the fish? Can you row me over to where the fish are? Because you know, you're just spoiled for life. It's ruined fishing for me. I have to go there now in order to do this. But I marveled as we're out on the river and there's trout jumping everywhere and there's just, it's amazing. I marveled as I watched these guys who are experts. I mean, they live here. They've been trained. They've been decades. I mean, they just, they can smell trout before they see them. I mean, they just know it, right? And how, how expert Center, how they are so good at knowing how to capture these fish. We were, uh, as the day would proceed, in the morning it's cloudy, in the afternoon it's sunny. We're changing up our baits because of the temperature in the air. We're watching how you see these little bugs kind of drifting on the water and as the warm air rises and the sun rises, they start hatching. So he's changing the lure to get the lure to try to match what's on the water. At one point when we were getting a tangle out of a line, wasn't my line, it was my line. When we were getting a tangle out, he had to row over to the shore, fixing that. And before we went back and over paddling into the river and going, he's like, well, just before we go, let me look real quick. He's picking up rocks and he's looking at the rocks and he's trying to figure out what type of bug, these little midge, these little, uh, and we're doing some nymph fishing. And he's trying to figure out what type of bugs the fish are, are eating right now. Pulls out here. Let me change your lures. I mean, he's these experts. And, and it started dawning on me. You're looking at this river, and I asked him, like, any, does, is this like this all the time? He's like, all year long, you know, winter months, you don't see it as much, but all year long, every day, literally billions of these little flies, these little bugs are going down the river, and there's trout there in the water, under the water with their mouths wide open, just kind of watching for them to come and grabbing them. And they're getting life, and they're getting nourishment, and they're getting fed by all these bugs. And you know what our point is and our purpose is? to take everything that's real, that's available to them and give them something fake and hope that they'll bite. What a picture, I'm telling you, of what Satan tries to do in our life. You have been giving, there's nourishment in life in this world that groans, in this world that is full of pain. There is still so much beauty and life and so much that Jesus models and shows for us of what it means to be free, of what it means to center and build our life around him in a way that just gives us life, gives others life. It's, it's all around us. And, and sometimes we just sit there with our mouth open, just not even paying attention. And we're like, wait a second, what is that? And we're distracted by the fake. And we're attracted to what is false. And he gets it in there. And I said, it's not just about the temptation. It's what's behind the temptation. You know what a good fisherman does. They try to hide the hook. I want you to see the bait, but not the hook, because if I can get you to get the bait, I got gotcha. you. Satan does it all the time to us. We're just going through, and some of these fish, these trout, 20, 22-inch, 24-inch trout, beautiful fish, been in the river for years, just enjoying the abundance of the life, been on the journey, they know, and just like that, something fake comes along, gotcha. 
And let me tell you something a little different from our fishing on the bighorn versus how Satan likes to play. Our fishing up there, we're practicing catch and release. It's just sport for us. We're just enjoying the outdoors. With Satan, it is not catch and release. It is catch and destroy. He's not playing games with you. His whole purpose in the temptations of Jesus is to destroy Jesus, to try to trip him up so that he cannot live out the purpose of his life and what his existence is for, to be our perfect Messiah, our sinless Savior. And the temptation is to try to derail him from that. It's the same thing he does with you. Just something, a little carrot, a little something shiny, and I've got so much, but something catches my eye. Gotcha. And by then it's too late. There's an old uh, Puritan preacher by the name of Thomas Brooks in the 1600s. I just stumbled on this book recently, and I love it. It's so rich. There's a poetic kind of a reading to it. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, written in the 1600s. And Brooks has this to say. Listen to what he says. The skillful fisher hath his several baits for several fish, but there is a hook under all. Satan, the great angler, hath his sundry baits for sundry tempers of men, which they all catch greedily with their mouth wide open, but few perceive the hook until it's too late. By the time you realize that you've fallen trap, it's not the temptation that's got you, it's the hook that's behind there. And just like a good fisherman hiding that hook behind the bait, Satan the angler wants to do all he can to trap, not to do a catch and relief. He wants to destroy you. He's not a little guy with horns and a a little pitchfork sitting on your shoulder. He's real. And he's counter everything that Jesus wants to give you life in. Every hope that you want, that Jesus wants for you, everything that would set you free, he wants to kill, steal, destroy, hold you captive. He's real. He's not to be toyed with. And Jesus demonstrates for us just how how important it is. We'll get to what Jesus' victory pathway is at the end, but how important it is to face with seriousness the battles of the enemy. So many get the hook in their mouth, and it's too late. He's got you. And here's the ploy of Satan. It's interesting. Sometimes the bait he'll use, puts it on the bait, hides the hook. Sometimes the bait are, are good things, are things that are part of our life, part of the journey. Sometimes the bait can be money. Sometimes it can be sex. In this passage, it's food, we'll see at one point. Sometimes it's fame or it's a desire for instant gratification. Sometimes the bait is high or or being just escape from the pain of the world. Just give me a high. Sometimes the bait is power or it's a boyfriend you want to have so bad or a girlfriend you want to have so bad or someone else's wife that just, oh, I know I shouldn't look. I've got life everywhere, but... And, and, and there's, it's things in life like that. Sometimes it's acquiring massive wealth. Sometimes it's accolades. Sometimes it's achievement. Sometimes it's approval of others that you're desperately wanting. Sometimes it's being included. And he just lets it float down river around so many good things that have nourished and can give you life. It's available there. And he just entices you with something that looks so much like the real thing, looks like the right thing, but it's fake. And mouth wide open, we're hooked. That's the thing. All these things that Satan likes to take. Because what Satan won't do, think about this. If I'm floating with master expert fishermen down the the river, and he's like, here's what we're going to do. On the end of your hook, we're going to have this cardboard cardboard poster that says, here, fishy, fishy. And you're just going to put that on the end of the hook, and let's just see how that works. We want to catch you and eat you. Okay, let's just see how this works. Too obvious. I mean, first, what in the world? Cardboard, you know, fish going by. It's not going to work. Satan doesn't do that either. Satan doesn't say things like, 
Hey, I want you to experience the pain of divorce in a broken home. So go after that affair. That's the hook. He entices you with the bait and then he gets you and the cost is massive. He doesn't say things like, I want you to know what gluttony or drunkenness or addiction and dependency on drugs looks like. He doesn't say, here, here, look at this. I want you to experience generations of family devastation because of an affair or or shattered relationships because of gossip or because of deep-seated bitterness that can form in you. He doesn't put it out there overtly. Like, here's the poster board. I want to ruin your life. He doesn't do that. Nobody would bite. Nobody would grab the hook. No, just like Brooks said, he has these little lures and he knows which ones work at different times in each of our life. And oh, when those temptations come, we got to know the difference between something that looks really attractive, might even look like the real thing, and something that gives us life. See, the battle plan of Satan, it's not all that clever on one level. It's just simply lies and half-truths. All he has to do is give you a fake version of the real thing and he might just get you. His battle plan is always lies and half truths. He does it all the time. In fact, Jesus talks about it in John chapter eight, talking about Satan. He says, he's a murderer from the beginning. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. This is not catch and release. This is catch and destroy. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Harsh words, true words. You gotta know who you're up against. Neil Anderson's written some amazing books about spiritual life and spiritual warfare. One of them is Victory Over the Darkness. And he has this to say, the major strategy of Satan is to distort the character of God and the truth of who we are. Notice that word, distort it. Can't change it. In fact, he said he can't change God and he can't do anything to change our identity and position in Christ. The the nature of God is the nature of God. He's holy, he's perfect, he's eternal, he is love. He is for us, not against us. You can't change the character of God. You can't change our identity. If you're a follower of Jesus and have placed all of your faith in eternity on the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection that proved that he is God, he can't change that about you. You're secure in him, right? So what he does instead, if however... He can get you to believe a lie. You will live as though your identity in Christ isn't true. And what he's saying here is you'll just see these artificial things and they'll look really appealing. And you'll pivot your values. You'll go back to what's our definition of temptation. It's this invitation to do self-interest or God's interest. If you don't have an understanding and he blurs the image and blurs the lines of the character and nature of God and your identity in God... He's going to make you think and justify and justify in the means, situational ethics, rationalizing, and you are going to, man, you're going to be hooked. And it's too late. And there's a cost on the other end of that. Satan's goal is to give you whatever will compel you to bite, whatever will get you to take the hook and to catch and destroy. Um, He entices you with the bait, but his intention is the hook. Because again, there's always more at stake than just the temptation. He's not just out having fun fishing with you. He wants to take you down. And that's what he tried to do with Jesus. So for 40 days, 40 days, Satan is just baiting Jesus, just baiting, trying this Lord, trying this angle, doing all he can to hook Jesus. And Jesus doesn't sin. Jesus shows there's a way of escape. 
Just want to walk very quickly through each of these temptations, but I want to say this first. Behind every temptation you will ever face, you might jot this down, every temptation you're going to face, you're going to find one of these three temptations. It's fascinating that the the ploys, the strategies that the enemy tried to use on Jesus, he's doing it still today. And behind anything you face, any temptation, anything that's dangling in front of you, that carrot that just kind of distracts you or that new bait, it's going to be found in one of these three areas. All three of these temptations are in the background of every temptation we experience. And again, remember, there's always more at stake behind it. He's trying to destroy you. And what you're going to wrestle with in all three of these and in anything you wrestle with, it's always an issue of am I going to trust and have confidence in God? Or am I going to take the bait and accept that invitation towards my own self-interest or my own self-desire? So real quickly, these three temptations. We'll let the scripture walk through. I'll call out a couple thoughts and we'll be done for this morning. First one is this, starts in verse two. Again, for 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, and what's the rest of that statement? He completes it by saying, tell the stones to become bread. Jesus' answer to him is this, it is written Man shall not live on bread alone. What's the first temptation that he tries to trip up Jesus with and he tries to trip us up with sometimes? It comes in the category of trying to solve a a genuine need or a genuine desire, but doing it the wrong way. Trying to solve something that is a genuine need or it may be a sincere, genuine desire in your life, but trying to solve it the wrong way. It's like our physical needs surface, our emotional needs can surface in that. See, Satan loves to do this. He likes to take good things. Maybe it's job opportunities, the opportunity for marriage, opportunity to have children or food in this passage, all these different things. He likes to make those things so important that they become central and they begin to drive all of your decisions. You start to think things like, I really want that. I really like that. In fact, I think I deserve that. I need that. I can find a pathway to get that. And before you realize it, it's become the object of your heart and the object of your affection more than the God who's provided that gift or provided potentially that good opportunity. Sometimes they're good things. He likes to take things and he likes to get us to where we're so focused on them that we forget the pathway that God has us on. If you noticed in verse one, it said, led by the spirit. See, God's got a plan. God has this moment in Jesus's life where temptation, where he's going through, he's going to be able to show his holiness. He's going to be able to identify with us. He's going to be able to show us the way to escape temptation. And if he doesn't get through this process, none of that mattered. If Jesus is so fixed on a genuine, real need, food, he's hungry, but he's he's so fixed on that, he may miss what God has for him. And he will try to solve a genuine need or desire the wrong way. Here's what the issue is as it comes up in our life. Sometimes it's us saying, I don't trust that God's love and provision is enough for me. I don't trust that God's love and provision is enough for me. Here's how it plays out. I'll do whatever I have to do to have that. Once it becomes that lure, that bait that we have to have, I'll do whatever I have to do to have that. I want the car. I don't care if I have to go into debt. I don't care if I have to say no to other things. I don't care if I, if I can just be honest, rob God and never give offerings or tithe or put him first. I want the car. It becomes the object of affection. I want that job. I don't care who I have to step on. I want the high. I don't care what it's going to cost me. I don't care if the illegalities or the concern it is for my body. I want the high. I want to chase the fix. I want the girl. I want the guy. I don't, have to, I don't care what I have to give up of myself to get him, to get her. We just find something that gets in the way, and it's an invitation to go to what I want or to what he wants. I'm chasing that security. 
I want that significance. I want to be seen. I want to be accepted. I want to belong. And before we know it, we're dipping colors. We're changing the scheme because as um, Neil Anderson was saying, Satan can't change who God is, but if he can change our view of him, Satan can't change who we are in Jesus as his followers, but if he can change who we see ourselves in him, he starts to win and we start to live differently. Temptation one, I solve a genuine need or desire the wrong way. And it's really the issue of, I don't trust God's love and provision to be enough. I'm gonna try something more, something different. Here's what Jesus' response was. Man doesn't live by bread alone. What does he mean by that? Man doesn't live by bread alone. He's saying this. There's something more important to me than even the physical need I have right now. I want communion with God. I want to trust. I want to follow him. I want to rest in. I want to stay the course with him. And there's something more important. As as hungry as I physically may be right now, I'm chasing something bigger, something spiritual. And and, and there's more than this. Man doesn't live by bread alone. I'm following the ways of God. Physical bread is good. There's nothing wrong with it. But Jesus says, my soul finds its completeness in communion with the Father. Our, Our instruction would be, find your satisfaction in him. Temptation number two, it's another pathway the enemy uses all the time and he used it on Jesus. He'll use it on you. It's in verse five. Look what he says. The the devil then led him to a high place and he showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. He says to Jesus, I will give you all their authority, all their splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. All you got to do is worship me and it will all be yours. The dilemma Jesus must have had in his heart, he for God so loved the world. He loves and the opportunity he can avoid so much. Jesus' answer, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's temptation number two, take shortcuts. There's a path, there's a plan, there's a journey that God has us on. Take shortcuts. That's a temptation that shows itself in so many different ways. Why was this temptation so powerful for Jesus? Because the kingdoms of the world are exactly what Jesus had come for. He's come, it tells us in all the gospels, these letters, including Luke, he's come to die to provide a pathway of life eternal for all the people of the kingdoms, all the brokenness, cover all the sins of the world. You're telling me there's a shortcut that I don't have to pay the pain and the shame and the ugliness of the cross. All I gotta do is just get on my knee and bow before you. It's a shortcut with the promise. It's a fake, it's not the real thing. It's artificial with the promise of the same result. You just can't understand the ramifications of if Jesus would have done this. Number one, he's violating the clear principle of scripture. You are to have no other gods before me. God alone is to be worshiped. That's why his answer right there is worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You're not gonna trip me and try to get me to take this shortcut, Jesus says. But the other thing that you recognize is Old Testament is filled. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is filled with all these promises, these prophecies of a Messiah, a suffering savior. You look through Isaiah, and by his wounds we are healed. On and on, these these prophecies that the scripture are gonna be fulfilled in Jesus. And if Jesus takes the shortcut, the Bible is trash. All these promises, all all these promises, all these prophecies don't hold water anymore. We can't trust, we can't rely. I've said it on different weekends, all these breadcrumbs that that, that God gives talking about Jesus, the Messiah coming, all these breadcrumbs are a waste. They're rubbish, if Jesus takes the shortcut here. And in our life, when we take the shortcut, sometimes we miss out on exactly what God is trying to do. Um, The issue that we see when we do this, taking a shortcut is, I don't trust God's plan. It's taking too long. 
It's too complicated. It's going to cost too much. I've actually stumbled on a better way, and I'm going to make my own plan. It reminds me of this kid. I, I, I just read this week about this kid who was praying every night for a bike. I mean, he was just convinced God wants me to have a bike. Mom and dad said, bikes are good. God wants me to have a bike. So every night he's kneeling beside his bed praying to have this bike. A bunch of nights go by, and he's really like, well, God's not going to do it this way, is he? So he just goes next door and steals his neighbor's bike. But then he asks forgiveness for it later, right? And the truth is, he was going to get a bike all along at some point, but he wanted it so much now that he couldn't trust the long-term plan. He takes matters into his own hands, breaks every rule. He asks forgiveness for it later, but he's completely missed the process. Sometimes it's the process of saving up money. Sometimes it's the process of trusting mom and dad to help you with the selection. On and on. You get the point. But my point is, sometimes we do the very same thing. God's got a pathway he's trying to walk us through. The Spirit led Jesus to be tempted to go through this. God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but to set us free. How? He's going to die for the world. Satan offers a shortcut, and if Jesus takes it, the whole thing is done. Jesus' answer is, I don't worship you. I'm not going to worship anything. I'm not going to shortchange this. We worship the Lord our God and serve him only. Jesus' response teaches us, crave him, follow him, trust him. Not your flesh, not the distractions, not the shortcuts, not your own desires or your own wants. Trust his ways, trust his timing. That's number two. Temptation number three shows up in verse nine. Look what happens again. The devil now leads Jesus to Jerusalem. And he had him stand on the highest point of the temple, just way above. If you've been to Jerusalem, can kind of picture this. And Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, there it is again, if you are the son of God, he loves to put question marks where God has already put statements and periods. But he just wants to create the doubt here. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Like just jump, take a swan dive. Because it's written, and check this out, look at the strategy of Satan. He's now gonna quote Old Testament scripture. This is from the Psalms. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, Jesus, you take a swan dive off of the thing. Let's just test God. I mean, he's not going to let you do a swan dive and be a splat on that. You're the son of God. If you're the son of God, let's test it. Let's check it out if it's true or not. And Jesus answers and says, do not put the Lord your God to a test. Don't put the Lord your God to a test. Here's temptation number three. Leveraging and using God for our own purpose leveraging and using God for our own purpose. What's, what's going on with this here and how does it relate to us? Here's the key word in that, test. Jesus says, don't test God. Because what's happening is the devil is tempting Jesus to test God to prove that God will do what he said, that he will take care of him. You don't have to do that. It's kind of like, you know, if you really are the son of God, if God really cares and takes care of you as his son, he wouldn't let you get hurt in a situation like that. Just go for it. You know if God really loves you and if God is really involved in your life, he would want this for you. He would, he would want you to, ah, don't worry about how much it's gonna cost you. Don't, don't worry about what somebody else would tell you. You know he'd want this because you're gonna enjoy it. He would want this for you, wouldn't he? And he's, he's never gonna leave you or forsake you. So it's not like if he doesn't like it, he'll forgive you. Just, and the temptation here is to leverage and use God for our own purposes. It's like, I can kind of have him around when I want him. I can put him on the shelf and ask forgiveness later when I need it. And we are, he misrepresents scripture entirely in there. And by the way, just because you can quote scripture doesn't mean you know what you're talking about on it. 
and that you're representing it true. People do it all the time. Jesus continues to quote back the truth of scripture though. The issue is I don't really, at the bottom line, I don't trust God and I'll take control myself. I kind of want to prove, like I don't, he says he loves me, but, and, and he's never going to leave me or forsake me, but if I run this, what if I try this? What if I do this? Jesus, just take a jump. He's, he, does he keep his promises or not? I mean, if you really are the son of God, right? We experience those kind of things all the time. Jesus says, don't put God to a test. Jesus is in essence saying, why would I need to prove, I'm sorry, why would I need God to prove what he's already declared? I don't need God to prove himself. Again, he is a God who in the past has kept his promises over and over. And even though it's crazy and difficult and chaotic and we're facing temptation and we're facing groaning and grieving in our life right now, we stay the course. I I don't need God to prove his love for me when he's already declared it through Jesus. I don't need him to prove that he is for me and not against me when I think of all the ways I failed him and yet his grace and his forgiveness never run out. I don't have to test God. I don't have to push the boundaries. I don't, Paul talks about this in Galatians because, because grace is amazing. So we just go on sinning and twisting it all. God forbid, he says, no, that's not, the med, that's not what the point of grace is, what, what grace is. We live and we bask in the confidence, the truth. As we've said in Luke, God can be trusted. And, and we don't need him to prove what he's already declared. Three different temptations. They show up in different ways in our life all over the place. And again, one final time, there's a reminder here. There's always more at stake than just the temptation. He's not just trying to play a game with you. He's not just trying to trip you up. He's not just trying to do a gotcha. No, Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to hook you. He wants the bait to entice you. But it's the hook he's had all along. And he wants to take you out of the game. It's exactly what he was trying to do with Jesus. Jesus shows us the way out. Um, a couple things and then I'll be done. Uh, why this story? Why, why in the world capture the story of this temptation? In, in Hebrews chapter four, so much encouragement from this verse. The writer says this, we do not have a high priest. By the way, speaking of Jesus here, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses. You face temptations? Yeah, I know. And that's hard? Yeah, yeah. Are you hungry, tired in it, and fatigued, just getting punched from every side? Yeah. We don't have a savior, a high priest who's unable to sympathize in our weaknesses. He's been there. We got the story. But, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. He faced temptation. The same ones that we walk through. He shows us we can have victory, and he sympathizes with us. He walks with us, and he wants us to have that victory as well. Lightning fast here. I'm literally, in 60 seconds, I just want to say this. Jesus' answer. How did he have victory in this? Real obvious, it's right on the top there. Two things. Number one, he was saturated with the Spirit. Starts right at the top of the verse. Jesus being full of the Spirit, that can also be translated saturated. He had immersed himself in the presence of the Spirit. The Trinity gets all weird for us to try to understand that, but he was led and filled by the Spirit. How could we ever walk into battle with Satan with anything less? We're toast. Put yourself on the front line against the greatest enemy ever who wants to seek, kill, and destroy you, and you're not going to do all you can to fill yourself, saturate yourself with the Spirit of God. You're toast. The perfect one, Jesus, saturated with the Spirit. What was the other thing we see in the passage? All three temptations. I don't know if you caught it as we went through, but as the temptation would come, Jesus would answer, it is written. And all three times he quotes from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy, chapter 6, chapter 8, he's quoting different passages. You know why? 
because Jesus was saturated with the scripture. He leaned fully on this roadmap of the scripture to guide in his life, saturated with the spirit, saturated with scripture, doing battle with the evil one who wants to take him out of the game. He wants to take you out of the game, saturated with the spirit in the presence of God over and over. So when those fake imitation lures start to come, mm -mm, I've been saturated in what gives me life and gives me nourishment and saturated with the scriptures. I know truth. I know the imitation and I know which one I believe. Um, I want to return, I'll quote here, Thomas Brooks, the one who wrote that, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Device. Listen to what he said. When we're talking about scripture, he says, it's not hasty reading, not just skimming, but serious meditation upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to our soul. It's not the bees touching of the flower which gathers the honey, but the bees abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. Isn't that beautiful? It's not he or she who reads the most, checking it off your list. Read through the Bible as fast as you can. No, it's the one who meditates, who lingers, who saturates themselves. That's the one who will prove to be the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. You're going to do battle with the enemy. That's what you're chasing after. By the way, one of our core values, just quickly to remind you here at Mosaic, that's why the Bible is our roadmap. We talk about it. It's on the banner. We mean it. We saturate ourselves in it. Let me just throw this on the screen again so you know what we're meaning. This may be new to you, but this is what we are guided by, our roadmap. In a world that is always changing, we build our lives on teaching that never does. A world that is groaning, a world that is grieving, a world that is chaotic. The scripture holds and what we do is strive to help every person we can to understand and live in the power and freedom that the way of Jesus brings. The enemy's attack is always with lies, with half-truths, with deception, with an artificial of the real thing. If he can just get you, he's got you. Oh, may we be a people that can sniff that out we can see it coming. We are so saturated with the presence of the Spirit in our life that we're not tempted by that. And when we are tempted, we don't act on it. Maybe we're so saturated by the truth of the Scripture of our roadmap that sets us free that when something comes down, we know it's a bait. There's a hook behind that. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost a lot of people that we say no. We run and we lean on the saturation of the Scripture and the saturation of the Spirit. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And our team's going to lead us uh, closing out in worship. Uh, but as they come and as they do, we're going to declare something together because the counterattacks against the enemy are the truths of Scripture. That's what Jesus does. It is written. Here's what the truth of Scripture is. Get that hook out of my way. And we're going to close with something we've been reading together recently in recent months. It's, it's these, uh, these creeds. These, this one's called the Apostle Creeds. These, these truths that have been around for 2,000 years, these, they've been written to capture some of the truths of Scripture. These are the counterattacks to the lies that the enemy wants to feed your, your heart, your minds, he wants to distract you with. This creed reminds us of what the truth of Scripture is. And so I'm going to invite you to recite this creed with me, but recite it as a declaration, a belief in our God and in in the truth of who he is and the roadmap that guides us. Would you say this with me as it'll be on the screen for us? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and he was buried for me and for you. 
He descended to the dead. Oh, but on the third day, here's the truth. On the third day, he rose again and he ascended to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. But I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of our sins, and the resurrection of our body, the life everlasting. That is the truth. That is what we counter his lies and those little baits that try to capture us. Don't you let that hook get you, okay? Live in the saturation of the spirit and the saturation of the scripture. Build your life on those truths. Build your life on him. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week.